I remember distinctly whenever somebody had a SIM card. And my grandfather and my father and my uncle and a bottle of scotch would all come out around the same time. <laughs> and there would be one toast, then a second lachaim, then the stories started to pour out. Then the tears started to pour out. And these guys who, in my memory, were tough as steel, their whole soft side would emerge. And they would cry about this person who had passed away and their mother to whom they were devoted. And just being in that inner circle, you kind of had to be a drinker. The other ladies, maybe who weren't just drinking their white wines, were off on the side. But with my scots in hand, I got to be at the center, like in the show where it happened. And it was delightful, and it really triggered something happy. So for me, mixing a cocktail that gives people pleasure and gives them an excuse to sit around and talk and share is all about recreating something that uh, was an important part of my childhood. Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast celebrating Jewish food, culture, and history. I'm your host, Beth Schenker. I think it's safe to say we're all in the thick of summer about now. And I don't know about you, but it's really hot here in Chicago. Everyone seems to be barbecuing, and the lightning bugs are out, my favorite sign of summer. I hope all of you are enjoying those long days, and you'll be happy to know that I'm here to help you with that. No matter what time the sun goes down, 5 o'clock says cocktail time. In order to have a fruitful conversation about this, I've invited Cheryl Rich Heisler, to be my guest today. Cheryl is a mixologist and the founder and proprietor of Mixed Metaphors, Signature Cocktails by Design. We're going to talk about cocktails and how she went from being a practicing lawyer to inventing the perfect signature cocktails. And she's even promised to share a recipe with us. So I think I should get started. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome to the Big Schmear. Hey, Beth. I'm very happy to be with you on a hot afternoon. It's wonderful to, to be invited. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm really, couldn't be more ready for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I've started already, if truth be told. told. I'm, uh, I've got a little something here to get me through the interview. So uh, I'm sure it's five o'clock somewhere, it wherever is. our listeners are. It is. And that reminds me, this is also the perfect time for those of you who are listening to grab a glass of something sparkling to drink as Cheryl and I find out about her story. Cheryl, I thought it might be fun to, to mix things up a bit, pun intended. As it were, yeah. And, <laughs> and let's start in the middle of your story. Can you tell us okay. exactly what a mixologist is? So mixology as a word actually goes back to 1872. Uh, Webster then described it or defined it as the art or skill of preparing mixed drinks. Whoa. And really, back in the 1800s, early 1900s, this whole thing about being a bartender was actually a very skilled profession. You didn't have people just hopping behind the bar and throwing things together and spinning them around in a blender and calling them, you know, a, a cocktail. You had to know your proportions. You had to know your grams. You had to know your whiskeys. Um, and over the years, it sort of slid backwards. So I think mixology as an art and as a title is going back to the sort of old-fashioned way to say, I'm a, I like to think of myself as a professional. I don't just mess around with this stuff. <laughs> I want it to be right, and I want my proportions right, and I want my drinks to taste delicious each and every time. And, of course, be unique. 
I think a bartender, and believe me, I'm very impressed with bartenders. They can do a lot. They can do them fast. They're not always the ones who think up the cocktails. Their job is to make sure that they're served perfectly and professionally and deliciously. But often there's a mixologist working with the bartender or working behind the scenes to devise that cool new drink that you've never heard of before. Ah, so now we all know what a mixologist does. And so let's go back in time just a little. I know you started your professional life as a lawyer, which is kind of a serious line of work. And so how did you get (laughs) from being that serious person that's not to say you aren't serious now, Cheryl. But um, I'm not serious about my drinks, heaven forbid. Yeah. And so, how did you get from there to here? Well, there's an important interim step, right? Um, I didn't go to law school. I did pass the bar. I did practice for a few years, but I never really liked it. And I took a detour from law into marketing. I worked in brand management for a Fortune 500 company for a while. And lots of unhappy lawyers heard about my story, and they called me to help them get out of law. So my day job, if you will, is still helping lawyers transition <laughs> into other things. Um, and that business is called Lawternatives, and I enjoy it. But my side hustle, which has become equally important and equally dear to me, is the mixology role. Uh, and what I find is that in some ways, career counseling and mixing drinks are kind of similar because you're taking unique and different qualities about a person or about a bunch of spirits and mixers and finding the right way to twirl them up so that when they're blended together, they're really good. Wow. I, I see a theme through running through it. Nobody else might. Uh, but I, I get the same uh, highs from doing both of these different kinds of roles. So... Where did the idea of being that person mixing those drinks, where did that come from? I mean, still, that's a giant leap from realizing you're practicing law, but it doesn't make you happy. You realize you need to, um, you know, explore other things. And you said you, you did some marketing. Still, that's not, that's not quite what you love doing now. Was there, some light, was there some light bulb that went on? Or was it at a bar and you just said... <laughs> Um, I love that drink. Uh, (laughs) I want to make more. There is an urban myth in my family, an urban legend, that I learned to crawl when my father would make a martini and put it out at the end of the room. No. Oh, yes. I think it's diagnosed or or, or, uh, actually documented on paper or filmed somewhere. I've yet to find those old eight millimeter (laughs) tapes because it was before video, right? Yeah. But, um, I, I guess I always love drinking. And truth be told, the association between cocktails and alcohol and my family was a really positive one. I, I know a lot of people have bad stories about alcohol, but I don't know if it was the Jewish part of the background or what, but I remember distinctly standing around on a Shabbat afternoon at a synagogue whenever somebody had a Simchat. And my grandfather and my father and my uncle and a bottle of scotch would come all come out around the same time. <laughs> and there would be one toast, then a second lachayim, then the stories started to pour out. Then the tears started to pour out. And these guys who, in my memory, were tough as steel, would, their whole soft side would emerge. And they would cry about this person who had passed away and their mother to whom they were devoted and just being in that inner circle 
you kind of had to be a drinker. The other ladies maybe who weren't just drinking their white wines were off on the side. But with my scotch in hand, I got to be at the center, like in the in the show where it happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was delightful, and it really triggered something happy. So for me, mixing a cocktail that gives people pleasure and gives them an excuse to sit around and talk and share is all about recreating something that uh, was an important part of my childhood. Wow, that's so cool. I love that story. And you can't make these things up. It, <laughs> no, it's true, especially the martini crawling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my, my dad would probably get in trouble for that one now. It's a long time ago. And he, I only got a sip when I got to the other end, I promise. <laughs> so you took lots of steps between even the marketing and, and having your own business. And, and I know one stop along the way was actually working with Koval, which my listeners probably are pretty familiar with because they know I love those people at Koval, and I love their products. So small Jewish beverage world, I guess. Right, and you and me both. I have so much respect for Koval. Uh, the owners, the, the people who work there, the, their products, how they market, how they stepped in when we were first uh, dealing with COVID and converted some lines over to hand sanitizer. They're a great, great organization, and they make fabulous spirits too yes i don't know if you had the chance to do the tour and sample everything yep. from yeah <laughs> well then you know <laughs> uh, no I, I love koval and i and i love that sonnet um when i first got out of uh, my bartending school experience gave me the chance to work with them and uh, introduce other people so we would do tastings we would do programs i had a very uh, open door with her if i thought there would be an opportunity for uh, exposure with a new group, especially a new kosher group, because all of the line is, is hectored, she'd say, great, you know, just let's set it up. And I was able to introduce a lot of people to the Koval product and also learn a lot about whiskey and mixing and mixology from uh, from the benefit of being with the Koval organization. So a good match for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a couple of questions about how did you decide you were going to do a business about signature drinks how did that come about so that's a great question i think a lot of people think well i'm going to go into the spirits business i'll either you know start to make my own which was never what i wanted to do i wasn't into actually doing the distillery although it's really cool to learn about and i also realized that i wasn't the perfect person to work at a bar i was a little bit the wrong demographic let's just say that <laughs> um, I, I didn't really want to be up at two in the morning and i didn't want to start as a bar back lugging 30 pounds of ice cube trays, all the things you have to do. So being a career counselor kind of helped because I was able to look at the whole industry and see where there were opportunities to break in. And at about the time that I was thinking of this, my now former sister-in-law introduced me to a magazine called Joy of Kosher. And I thought, oh, wow, this is so cool. It's a kosher magazine, and I'm flipping through the pages, and there's a brisket recipe, and here's a pierogi recipe. And here's a really basic, kind of lousy cocktail <laughs> recipe. And it was like uh, the light bulb went off in my head. I can yeah. help these folks without working till 2 in the morning unless I choose to. Right. And I can introduce their readers to really good cocktails that can be made kosher. And, you know, there's a full range of products that are kosher. You can make almost any cocktails kosher, non-kosher. That, that's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. So I pitched them. And I said, I can do this for you. We can, you know, up this 100%. And they bit. And so I started writing a column for them. They did about eight issues a year. 
so we could tie into the holiday theme. We could tie into what are we doing this summer. We could tie into a particular, uh, I don't know, something that was going on in the news. We had all kinds of flexibility, but I now had a legitimate backer, somebody who would take my cocktails, recreate them, shoot them, make them look great, and get my name out there as the person who designed those cocktails. So it was, as they say in the Jewish world, kind of to share it. For we, sure. We went together. Who? What were the chances that a Jewish and kosher mixologist would happen to see <laughs> a magazine that just needed that particular combination of skill sets? Right? Yeah, it was yeah. wild, but it was great. And from there, even though that magazine is no longer in publication, it gave me a little bit of legitimacy. So then I could take my photos and drinks to other places and say, look, I, I can do this, but it's not limited to kosher drinks. And that allowed me to build up my stable of clients. So now I have certainly individuals who come looking for everything from a special anniversary gift for their significant other to uh, a bride who wants a drink that's going to be purple and pink to match her color scheme, but also corporations and nonprofits. And uh, one of my favorite clients is a local theater. They are nationally renowned. They do about six plays a year in a good year. I don't know what COVID will do to that. Yeah. But I get to read the plays ahead of time and design the signature cocktails and mocktails that we serve at the bar. <sighs> so it's the ultimate fun in being creative. I like theater. I like reading plays. I like thinking about what that suggests. And then I can translate that somehow into liquid refreshment. How fun is that? <laughs> So how do you find inspiration for those special signature drinks? And I guess some of it is, as you said, there's a bride. But tell me some more about what kinds of things inspire you. There are so many places to grab an inspiring thought from. It could be as simple as playing off the name of a play. So last season we did A Doll's House. And I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Ibsen's sort of first feminist play and the protagonist, the heroine, starts to push back against the overbearing husband and father. The drink we did is called Change is Brewing. Mm. So that made sense to me because there's change coming, but it was in the fall and we needed a warming drink. So it's a coffee drink. So that's Uh a playoff of the brewing. And because it's also fall, we used a maple bourbon and an apple brandy. So we did, it's seasonal, it's time of year, it's connected to the play, and it's something that, especially when topped with a little bit of a whipped cream and maple syrup, our patrons love. So inspiration can come from anywhere. I know it's hot, but that drink sounds so good right now. <laughs> <laughs> you can put it over ice, too. I, I, equal opportunity, <laughs> which is true about mocktails. One of the things that we've learned at the bar is that there are funny people who decant or don't want to drink, right? They don't want to be tempted to fall asleep during a production. Right. So when we can also offer a mocktail, similar, doesn't have to be identical, but we've replaced the booze with something else. Mm-hmm. We have done phenomenally well with that because it opens up a whole, people don't necessarily want to just have a Coke. You know, you get this fancy drink right. in a cup with whipped cream and, and I get a Coca-Cola. Yeah, so not quite mocktail, fair. <laughs> and that's, you know, one of the things that, Sometimes people like to talk about is trends. This idea that you can make a lovely mocktail or a lovely non-alcoholic drink is something that's really rocking the industry. There, for from the business standpoint, it's a money maker because you're not 
having to go out of pocket for the booze. Right. But it's a really nice thing to be able to offer your patrons. Oh, absolutely. When you're um, designing a drink for a bride and groom or you're designing a drink for a corporate event, same skills, but are there different kinds of things you're looking for? And do you do extensive interviews with these people, your clients? Also a great question. I pride myself on making sure that every drink is unique to the organization or the people or the event. So I love to talk to my clients. There's not a one drink fits all situation. One client that I have is a health food marketer. They don't want to use big brands. They only want to use smaller brands, and they want to actually use client products wherever possible. Mm. One of their clients made a, a like a non-GMO a tomato vinaigrette, and I thought, let's incorporate that into a spiced Bloody Mary. Ooh. So we were able to feature the client's product in this party atmosphere, but still turn it into a cocktail. So uh, cool. So talking whether it's the corporation or whether it's the individual is definitely an important part of each step. But the other thing you have to consider is how many people will be attending this event and how quickly do the drinks have to come out. Mm. One of the great things I've learned from the theater is how important it is, especially with a large event, to not make something so frou-frou that you can't batch it up and get it out the door. There's nothing worse than standing in line for 20 minutes at a bar. We've all been there. Yeah. You want to visit with each other. You want to visit with the bride and groom. You want to network and mingle, and you're standing in line. So you can have a fabulous drink that's simple but not simplistic. And when we get to today's drink, I think that's a perfect example of it. The ingredients and the taste is really nice, rounded, I'll say complex, not complicated. Mm -hmm. But it's a drink that tastes like it's got a lot more going on than what we're putting in. So by getting your balance right and getting the right unique ingredients, you can make something that's practical as well as delicious and easily reproducible. What was your most unusual cocktail request? Ooh. <laughs> most unusual request. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was one event that was so much fun. I guess in retrospect, it was kind of uh, unusual. I was on a double bill with a magician. Uh-oh. <laughs> and we wanted to come up with a disappearing cocktail. Whoa. The, the joke, of course, would have been just for the magician to drink it down. Right, <laughs> what, right. What kind of disappearance. But we had to design a cocktail that could be made without anybody in the audience knowing that could be made in his special glass. So that when he, I don't remember if he snapped his fingers or pulled out a scarf or whatever it was, the drink would disappear. Uh, super fun. The challenge, I, I mean, this is not brain surgery. I get that. But it's still challenging. It's still fun. It's definitely creative. And at the end, it's not just creative for me. I got to make sure that other people like the finished product. So that kind of keeps you going, you know, it keeps you awake at night. Think, How are we going to do this? It just sounds like so much fun. I mean, yeah, there's challenges, but, <laughs> and the end result is making people happy. So that's a great job. Right. You can't go too far wrong. I mean, listen, some people complain. Some people say that's too boozy. Some people, you can't make everybody happy. No. But balance <laughs> is important. And also there are little tweaks in the game. So I, I'll make a great drink and I like a boozy drink. And I could always see, even in today's cocktail, you see, I suggest that you've got a, a flavored seltzer to uh. add to it. So if it's too strong for you, okay, bubble it up. Make it to your liking. 
I'm not one of those people that says you must drink something the way it's written or you must drink white wine with fish and red wine. Drink what you like. At the end of the day, this is a trivial pleasure and you should enjoy it. But there are ways to tweak any kind of cocktail. And, you know, P.S., if you're at a bar, God willing, we can all go back to bars safely someday. I realize, I don't know when someone's going to be listening to this. Right now you can't. But if you're at a bar or a restaurant uh, or at somebody's home and they give you something and you don't like it, there's nothing wrong with saying, gee, you know, could I have a little bit more juice or a little bit of seltzer water? Everyone's so afraid you're going to offend somebody better than if you turn around and spill it, make it what you want. Yeah. And, and in fact, I was wondering if someone is at home, which a lot of us are spending way more time at home just because of the pandemic, and they wanted to try and dress up some stuff at home. Do you have any, like, a few pointers or a little bit of advice to what kinds of things people would want to think about when they embark down that route? Sure. That's such a smart question. Um, so if you're at home and you're deciding to maybe venture into your uh, liquor cabinet in <laughs> a while, the first thing you should check is that nothing has gone bad. Booze has a really long shelf life, provided it hasn't been like sitting in direct sunlight. And usually things that if they're in a, a darker bottle, they'll tend to wave off the sun damage a little bit better. But like anything else, you know, take a look at it, open it up. Is it all crusty at the top? Or is it still a pretty clean, you know, clean yeah. surface that opens and closes easily? So I'd start with that. If, obviously, if it smells bad, you don't know what it tastes like when it's right. You probably won't know what it tastes <laughs> like when it's off. But if it has a bad odor or you realize that a lot of it, let's say, has evaporated, uh, then I might toss it. But let's say you go through your cabinet and then you start to divide your liquor into, I would start with what's my white whiskey versus my dark whiskey. So by mm. white whiskey, I'm talking about vodkas, gins, tequilas. Uh, you might have some other random kinds mm-hmm. of things. Uh, and then my dark whiskeys. My rum can, you could have a lighter dark rum, but scotch, bourbon, rye, Irish whiskey, other things. Mm-hmm. So then now you've got one big distinction. Do I want something that's going to be white whiskey a little bit, t- tends to be, not always, a little bit lighter. Dark whiskey tends to be a little stronger, a little bit more. The booze taste comes through a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. Then I'd get out a whole bunch of little cups, and I don't ever make a first-time drink in a full cup because that's just wasteful. Instead of saying, you know, a recipe says two ounces of this and one ounce of something else, I'll make a baby one, and I'll use two parts of the first thing and one part of the second so that percentage-wise, it's still accurate, but I don't want to waste three ounces of good whiskey if I just want to taste it and see if I'm going in the right direction. Right. So that's something I would definitely tell people. And then I'd start to play around with what flavors go together. Traditionally, and again, there are no rules, vodka goes real well with citrus. So if you have vodka at home and you've got lemonade, limeade, orange juice, grapefruit juice, you're moving forward. (laughs) Even if you just have vodka and soda and then a lime or citrus squeeze, you've got a drink. Mm. But that would be one thing you could think of. Gin tends to be more botanical. So sometimes gin goes uh, easier with things like olives or pickle juice or anything that's maybe a little bit saltier. Mm -hmm. Now, again, people make martinis out of either one, but if you're just starting basic rules. As you go down the dark whiskey path, I find that rye tends to work real well with an orange infusion. Uh, Orange juice, orange rind. You see bourbon often with cherries. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Scotch, 
I don't mix with scotch a lot because I like really good scotch and I <laughs> don't want to dilute it. I'm with but you. Sometimes it's, it's crazy, but scotch and cranberry can work. Ooh. So once you have just a few basic ideas, then you can start to play. And that's when I would use either simple syrups, flavored simple syrups. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about that in a second. Or flavored liqueurs. Because liqueurs tend to be sweet and they already have the flavor infused in them. So let's go back to Koval for a second. If you remember any of their liqueurs, they have some lovely oh, flavors. They have a rose tip. <laughs> uh, they have an orange blossom. They, I think they still have chrysanthemum honey. So instead of boiling down sugar and adding chrysanthemums and honey to make a simple syrup, which is really all a simple syrup is, is just sugar, water, and whatever flavor you want to infuse or, or uh, allow to macerate in there, uh, you can use a little bit of the liqueur. And so now you've got a three-item drink, uh-huh. right? three-ingredient drink, a booze, a mixer, and a liqueur. And you've got something, without doing too much work, that will probably come out halfway decent. Now you've got to play with how much of each one and make sure the flavors profiles actually do work together. But if you're making these little baby ones that I talked about, you're not going to go through a lot of product till you find a match that works for you. Right. Whoa, that's great. So I'm going to ask you another kind of expertise question, which is if I'm keeping kosher, you mentioned this just briefly a little while ago, are there some things I need to think about to be sure that my cocktails are kosher? Kosher cocktails are definitely doable, but it does take an extra level of care and concern, right? Like with anything kosher. First of all, not many spirits are marked with a K or an OU, depending on what labeling system you follow. You can go to certain lines, like we talked about earlier. Everything in the Koval line is kosher. You don't have to worry. You pick up a Koval product, you're good. Yeah. If something is marked, it's good. If you don't know, then you have to consult. And it's a caveat. Everybody's got a different level of kosher. Sure. But let's say you're doing something for the synagogue or somebody you know who keeps strictly kosher. Then I usually go to the uh, CRC website, the Chicago Rabbinical Council. Or and any, any have, I'm sorry, I'm going to just interrupt. You can go to your local rabbinic council wherever you live. There's no yeah, doubt Absolutely. One. Yeah. CRC is online. You could use that as a backup if you didn't have a local one, but sometimes they're the toughest. If you, if you want to go venue shopping, it's an old term from my legal days, you might <laughs> look for a, a local VOD or an organization that's more liberal, uh, but they'll tell you what they recommend, what's absolutely okay, what's recommended, and what's not recommended, and what you shouldn't use. So that's another way to do it. But you asked about where you can go wrong. Most clear spirits, like an unflavored vodka, an unflavored gin, an unflavored tequila, an unflavored and unaged, will almost always, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but generally <laughs> will, will pass the kosher test. Once you get a product that's aged, though, and so you, it starts to take on the color of the oak barrel or the sherry barrel, mm-hmm. then you could have a problem because of, my understanding of the world of kashrut and why, you know, why certain wines are kosher and others aren't has a lot to do with how it's aged. And if something is aged in a barrel with something that contains a non-kosher product, that taint, if you will, is given to the product that's that clear product that was put in the barrel to age right. and mature. So then you couldn't have any of that. There are some fantastic dark spirits that are kosher. So you're not at a disadvantage. You just have to seek them out. There are a few liqueurs that I have found that I will use in my home 
or in my mixing for clients that other people won't, I'd say 85% of the time I can find an acceptable alternative. There are just a few things that are one-offs. And mm-hmm. then, you know what? You just make up another drink. Right, right. But I, I think those guideposts are really helpful to people, so I appreciate that. I, uh, I don't hold myself out as the be-all and the end-all there, please. No, no. Anybody but consult your local organization. Absolutely. But at least people now know what kinds of things to be aware of that could present a question for them. So that's, sure. that's the most helpful thing. And so we're talking. And I should add, before you go on, sometimes I'll do an event, let's say, for an, a Hadassah group. And I'll go ahead and I'm ready to use stuff that I've used before, especially in the mixer world. And I go pick it up for the group. And that's, suddenly they've taken the hexer off of it. Oh. So you should, if you're doing an event, make sure that on the day or the week you're going to do a run to the store or check with the store that the labeling hasn't been changed. Oh. I remember doing something for a synagogue fundraiser. It was a big art fair, and this was the gala, and one of my cocktails was using a pomegranate liqueur. And I'd used it several, several dozen times maybe. And luckily the person at my local retail store said, Cheryl, I know you're doing this for a kosher event. They've removed the signage from it. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> and it was on the way to the event. So we punted. <laughs> and again, because there's some wiggle room here, it's a drink after all. I think we were able to substitute more pomegranate juice and more pomegranate vodka. And we were able to get away from what we were getting out of using that uh, pomegranate liqueur. But it was a little bit frightening. Like, what am I going to do? I got to deliver this drink. Yeah. And I can't use that particular product. So we're talking details here about cocktails. And before we say goodbye, we're going to definitely talk about the cocktail that um, recipe that you shared. But but I want to ask one other question first, which might be a burning question for those people at home, and that is, if they would want to use your services, let's say they have a special anniversary coming up or a birthday, and they would love for you to design their this special signature cocktail recipe, how would they find you, and how would they go about working with you? So they can call me. They can look me up on Instagram at Mixed Metaphors, M-I-X-E-D-M-E-T-A-P-O-U-R-S. They can go to www.mixedmetaphors.com. They can yell, I'm thirsty, help me, and I'll, I'll keep an <laughs> ear out for them. But yes, reach out any way you see fit. It would be so much fun to help design something that would be special for whoever it is you're doing the drink for. Oh, good. Thank you. Thanks for that. I think there are people Thank out you. there. Thank you for the chance to tell people. Sure. So Cheryl is sharing a drink, cocktail for Shabbat, but it doesn't have to be just for Shabbat, called A Little Taste of Heaven, and you'll find the recipe on my website. So Cheryl, um, is there anything you want to say about this cocktail, anything about a particular food that it might go well with, or some ambience, or what might help people enjoy this cocktail? Take it away, Cheryl. (laughs) <laughs> I, well, I'm sitting here drinking one now. Oh, all right. <laughs> so I'm not exactly objective, but it's lovely, and it's flavorful, but still light, which is kind of fun in the summertime to be able to use a dark whiskey, and this is a bourbon-based drink. But even my husband, who is not a drinker, he's sort of my taster of last resort, when I <laughs> ran it by him, he said, oh, this is good. So. Folks, you can, if you don't trust me, you can trust my husband. 
Uh, oh. The reason I call it a little taste of heaven is because I originally, and you don't have to do it this way, but I always thought it'd be fun to make with Heaven's Door bourbon, which is Bob Dylan's brand. Ah. So, you know, knock, knock, knocking on that little taste of Heaven's Door. Yep. You use an ounce and a half of that or your best bourbon. Bourbons are especially bourbons that we're going to mix with. I, I don't think we're talking about $200 bottles of bourbon here, although you can spend upwards of that. They're remarkably similar in a drink. When you're sipping bourbon, there are big differences. Some are more caramely, some are sweeter, some have, they all have to have 51% corn to be bourbon, but then what the other 49% is, is up to the manufacturer. So just look for a nice bourbon that's, that's not too sweet, not too heavy. Use an ounce and a half of that in a rocks glass. Add three ounces of tart cherry juice. Uh, I used a, a brand called Cherubundi, but you can find lots of different kinds. You just want to make sure it's tart cherry juice, not the sweet stuff. And by the way, there's all kinds of uh, health benefits to the, I can't see that the drink is a whole, <laughs> but tart cherry juice can be good for your muscles. It can be good for your sleep. It can be good for your any inflammatory problems. So think of what good you're doing for your body. While you're of course. <laughs> you're going to squeeze in a, light, a lime wedge. You're going to put, plop in the biggest, coolest ice cube you have. You can you can use any kind of ice, but it's in the picture, I think we used a big round ice cube. You did. By the way, you want to spruce up your cocktails for next to nothing. Invest in some fun cocktail molds. You can impress the heck out of people because you use a big black ice cube or a big round cube or a, a long rectangular cube, and that's just a matter of different shapes of frozen water. You're going to add your, instead of the lime wedge, you're going to, I'm drinking it just like that. If you want something a little bit lighter, a little bit uh, more late afternoon, pre-dinner, add some lime seltzer and top it off with a lime wheel. And you have something that's, well, I guess I've, ne I've never been to heaven, but I'd really like to <laughs> go there. Uh, this would taste to me what I think a taste of heaven might, uh, might be like. And P.S., this is a batchable drink. Remember I said it's nice because you can do it and still be a, able to enjoy yes. the party. Batch it out. Just Use your bourbon and your cherry juice together, and then leave the fruit, the seltzer, the ice out until you're ready to serve it. Then it's easy peasy, and people can pour their own. If you wanted to turn this into a Shabbat afternoon punch, mm. I think it would be wonderful in a big bowl with a couple bottles of dry kava as well. Use the kava instead of the seltzer. So you can repurpose this drink or expand it, if you will, and then you just have a little taste of heaven for more people. Whoa. Can't lose with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Cheryl, I want to... Oh, let me just say one thing before I say that we have to say goodbye. And that is just to remind people that the, the recipe is on the website so you don't have to keep going through and listening to the podcast, unless, of course, you want to, to get that recipe. And we have a beautiful photo of it, too, so you can look at that, be inspired, and then mix up your cocktail for Shabbat or whatever event you would like. Cheryl, this has been so much fun. Thank you for being my guest. Oh, thank you, Beth, for having me. I'd love to talk cocktails anytime, day or night. And like, like we said, it's always 5 o'clock somewhere. It is always 5 o'clock somewhere, and I know I'm going to have you back. We're going to talk about cocktails, and we're going to match you up with some Jewish holiday, and we'll figure it out. So, yeah, so I'm really excited for that, too, and happy that we could share your story with all my listeners this time. I want to send a special shout-out to my good friend, Chef Laura Frankel, for providing a wonderful virtual introduction to Cheryl. So we wouldn't be together if it weren't for Laura. This is great. 
Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. I, had, <laughs> I second that. My recording and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmear, please don't forget to subscribe to my podcast. Follow my Instagram account at Beth the Jewish Foodie and write a review or share a like on my Facebook group page. And please do tell your friends to listen. It's the best way for my podcast to continue to grow. If you have any comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at beth at thebigschmear.com. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening. Happy eating and happy drinking. Thank you.